These days, so many podcast hosts just riff through unprepared segments until they get to the next ad break for pills they know nothing about, cheap razors, and whatever else they can get a buck from. But the Higher Side Chats does it differently. We succeed or fail on the quality of the content and your desire to hear more of it. So you're about to hear another free first hour episode that's here to prove the two hour shows are worth subscribing for. Five shows a month for just $8. Members get a mobile friendly website, a decade of archives, a dedicated RSS feed for the best podcast apps, and a lot deeper discussion than a single hour can allow for. Sponsor free with more for thee. Get a free seven-day trial of THC Plus at thehiresidechats.com. Enjoy! In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. It's the end of the world as we know it, but I feel fine. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and while the news cycles and social media algorithm argue about Roe v. Wade, pregnant men, and the never-ending story that is January 6th, Inflation has hit a 40-year high, grocery costs have gone up 12%, and the biggest annual increase since 1979, electricity is up 14%, and gas prices are so out of control that even truckers who took the jab to keep their jobs are thrown in the towel just a few short months later. But the system is dead set on dishing out distractions and desperately hoping you won't notice the food factory fires and spontaneous facility combustions the widespread killing of livestock in the name of disease, and the supply chain shakiness that all feels a little more than coincidental. Well, with their privileged knowledge of sun cycles, the global electric circuit, grand solar minimums, and the rise and fall of empires, it seems like this capstone cabal is using every play in the playbook to try and steer the ship through these troubled times and right into a global, techno-tyrannical, data-driven digital dystopia that will be offered as the only solution in a world driven to the brink of total scarcity. And these are just some of the dark and scary recent insights I've gleaned from the work of today's guest, David Dubine. He's the creator of both the Adapt 2030 channel you can find across the full range of video platforms, as well as the Mini Ice Age Conversations podcast where he discusses energetic, mappable cycles on Earth as the sun repeats its 400-year cycle of low activity affecting global crop production, the economy, and every aspect of our lives. He stays dedicated to educating the people on the timelines of what you can expect in the next few years as society resets so you can keep your families and communities safe. It's definitely not going to be all unicorns and rainbows today, but hey, let's get into it. The Sun Cycle Scholar, Crop Loss Chronicler, and Professor of Preparedness, David Dubine. Welcome to the Higher Side. Yeah, thanks for that kind introduction. It does cover quite a bit of what we're seeing in society. And as I would start today's program, the reason I do what I do is we're all in this together. 
I'm with you. We're all in it. There's nowhere to run or escape from this. We work as a cohesive unit. And if you're more prepared, and many people around in our country are more prepared, the easier it is for me to get through it with everybody. Because like I said, we're all here together. So if we work together, there's many ways to defeat these non-human agendas and also make our lives more fruitful and abundant in different ways than being reliant on centralized systems. So I, I take the approach every time I put out information when I'm thinking about how to phrase it for the most benefit, so how we can continually improve our readiness across the entire spectrum of our society. Mm. <laughs> well, that's a way to color it up a little bit because it's getting quite dark when uh, we really talk about the things that seem to be coming. And I'm really looking forward to this one because lately I've tried to do some lighter interviews about cryptids, dogmen, and paranormal experiences, which you told me you actually have a little interest in, funny enough. But everything out there right now is just so heavy that I kind of needed a break from reality. And that's just my way of doing it and still getting my job done. But it is time to swing back into an honest look at the writing on the wall, as difficult as that might be. But to let the people know how this became your focus, I understand it started with some trouble you were having buying coffee beans a few years back. Is that right? It is. I used to buy coffee in, in Myanmar, a country a lot of people know as Burma. And even back in 2011 and 12, that country first opened up at that point. It had been closed off for sanctions. You think about sanctions now, everybody's familiar with Russian sanctions. Well, if you go back a couple of decades, there were Burmese sanctions. And that was ongoing for 30 plus years. So that country was totally isolated. And I was living and working in Asia anyway. And, you know, there an opportunity came open to go down and look for coffee. And we were some of the first people in there traveling to the highlands. And Pinoluin is kind of the major coffee area, but then from there you can scoot off into different, little bit higher elevations. His coffee's pretty much at 1,000, to say 1,200 meters in height, grown in Myanmar. But the interesting thing when we got there, they were telling us about, you know, if we're going to plant for you for your production, we're going to have to overplant 12, 14 percent because the new saplings in the fields, there's going to be some die-off from the cold. And I thought, okay, we're at a higher elevation anyway. Perhaps that's true. And it's just colder because, you know, we're at 3,000, 3,600 feet in elevation. It's a little cooler. But nope, they were telling me that their grandfathers and great-grandfathers in the 1880s when the British were trying to make a cash crop out of coffee, you know, tea was there, but they were trying to introduce coffee, that they started to get hit by these same cold weather crop losses there. And the problem with it is your coffee bean will have these little tiny pockets of water that will freeze solid, but when they melt, when it gets warmer, they leave that hollow pocket in the bean. And those who roast the beans will have to watch the temperatures more closely, and it's called the density of the bean, and many roasters will be very familiar with your density. If it's different than the roasting profiles or the way you roast that coffee to eat it, it come out to the flavor that you want is gonna be affected by that. So going into the buying, they were telling us and being very straightforward, which I really liked about Burmese business guys. They were so straightforward with it. Okay, these are the problems we're encountering with our product. We're just going to tell you up front, just so you know, as a buyer, that we still want to do business, but we have a problem with the coffee. For these last four or five years, it's starting to get cold again. We think it's a cycle and it should end 
in a couple more years. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I only ever knew global warming then. And that's what took me down the rabbit hole. I was just a business guy looking for five years out to see how much coffee we could get and how much coffee we could export out of Myanmar up to Japan and Taiwan. And that was it. I was going in as a business guy looking for five years forward production on how we could expand the business. And it took me down this rabbit hole, which I never have come out of, and it become my life now. Hmm. <laughs> it is funny how we end up going down certain paths, and it starts usually with just a little inkling of a really small microcosm, and then it filters out into really knowing a whole lot about a lot of things people just aren't aware of. And let's frame up where we are by giving some context for the deeper history and the relationship between the rise and falls of civilizations and empires and how that overlaps with sun cycles and previous grand solar minimum periods. Because I watched your presentation, Winter is Coming, and you have many, many charts that show that the rhythms, almost like a heartbeat, of human civilization and sun activity, they align almost perfectly. But what can you tell us about this? Every culture and civilization prior to the one that we live in now worshiped the sun, and the sun was the center of everything religious and spiritual because they understood how integral the sun was to the ability for us to grow food on the planet. And that seems to be the cycle there. When the sun steps down, the electromagnetic field or the magnetic field of the sun changes, and it also affects the magnetic field on the planet here on our Earth and in the solar system as well. We're not the only planet experiencing changes at the moment. So if you look at it a broader context, it can be simplified in the electromagnetic field of the sun changes in some way, and we can leave it change as in A, B, C, D. Whatever change that is magnetically on the sun affects our planet. When it steps down and goes into a lower activity state, then the jet streams and the cloud cells can move around in different positions on our planet because our magnetosphere or the electromagnetic field that locks in those weather systems on our planet, it gets really loose and they can move to different places. Well, this is a mappable cycle. And it does look like an EKG that you have ever seen from any hospital. Now, we're coming into the solar maximum phase of our 11-year cycle right now. But after we finish this, it's going to drop off and we're going to head into once in a 400-year decrease in solar activity along with the electromagnetic changes and people's perceptions of waking reality around them will change perception because your brains are magnetic fields in themselves. So if the magnetic field of our Earth is affected and it changes enough to have the North and the South Pole go into different places magnetically wandering, your brains are going to behave differently also the way it processes information, the electrical signaling in there. And this would explain a lot of what you consider crazies today. Hmm. Well, it all goes along with that. And every chapter that you look back in history, there always seems to be a phase of what was considered like insanity that leads into the food shortages, that leads into the government overthrows or the change of governments, the way they rule people, and also a restructuring of the economy after a collapse and then a reemergence again. But my study basically goes back to 400 years BC, which is 2,400 years prior. But if you're looking at longer cycles, 
They're on an EKG heartbeat as well, whether it be the glaciation cycle of 100,000 years. You go back 5 million years, you get that up and down, up and down. Strong solar activity, strong sun, we get that 10,000 years of warmth, and then the sun steps down and we get 90,000 years of glaciation. Just the way the procession of the equinox, as many people are familiar after Graham Hancock's work, how our North Pole transits around the pole star, and then it goes through the houses of the zodiac, 25,750 years. And we start to see these cycles. You can bring them out incredibly distant as in a 100,000 year ice age pattern, still registering high electrical activity, low electrical activity, just like an EKG. Procession of the equinoxes, or we can come into something really close, like we see right now, 11.8 year solar cycle. How is that so patterned? If it was an internally combusting star, you would not have a regular heartbeat of low activity, high activity on an 11.8 year cycle. There's another mechanism behind it. And a lot of people don't want to talk about that. And it might sound a little bit woo-woo, but that ether or that electrical frequency that pervades space itself can be tapped. And that's where Nikola Tesla came in, starting to tap the aether. Mm -hmm. You know, and then you can go a whole different direction, which, you know, you could talk about JP Morgan and putting meters on copper wires or delivering electricity wirelessly like Tesla devices and inventions. That's all predicated on the electromagnetic spectrum across all space in the third dimension that holds what we consider the universe together. And see, so this is where you can start to blend these two worlds. And when you start to find about one world of frequencies on the star and how it affects our Earth, you can quickly switch over and to talk about frequencies, how we can generate power without having to burn anything. But then you can trace it back on how much commerce would have been lost over the last 120 years and how many wars would not have been fought and how easy our lives would be without having to worry about paying for electricity and different energies and you know it gets a little woo-woo there so i'll stop <laughs> but anyway civilization heartbeat is based on electrical activity from the sun yes yes and we like woo-woo but i agree with you it seems like artificial scarcity is the name of the game they've tried to create monopolies based on anything they can meter and control and that's how uh the robber barons have robbed us of uh possibly a, a future golden age. You know, if we ever had a previous one, I guess that's up for debate, but a lot of people seem to think we did. But either way, some of the other things I learned from your winter is coming presentation, you have this chart of grain prices in Switzerland from 1755 to 1800, and there are big spikes in 1758, 1773, and 1793, and they coordinate perfectly with the solar cycles. You have a little anecdote about grow zones in Asia. There are areas where in the past they talked about growing oranges and then for 50 years they couldn't grow oranges in that area because these grow zones just completely shift when the sun activity heats up or slows down. And you've said that when you look at history, three things happen every grand solar minimum, migration, economic reset and government overthrow and migration and economic reset are definitely in the public consciousness at least the 
counterculture, conspiratorial consciousness. A lot of people are talking about the way the elite are really focused on migration and putting certain people in other areas. And it just seems to be like a weird priority they've had in the last couple of years. But then economic reset, of course, the Great Reset, it's pretty much the talk of the town. And government overthrow, they don't really want to talk about quite so much, but it seems like that could be in the cards as well. But for people who are either new to this or maybe aren't fully convinced that this grand solar minimum cycle is in our immediate future, regardless of if they can accept that it happened in the past or not, what would we look at to make the case that in our very near future, we are going to be going into a grand solar minimum and these sorts of things are going to enter into our reality. The NASA projections and the European Space Agency projections all say we're heading into it at the end of this solar cycle. Now, if you want to stay on just traditional science and right into the mainstream that that's all you want to look at, I encourage you, highly encourage you to look at the sunspot count that NASA had forecast going out. It's like 2028, 20, 27. We're talking like an average of what, 13 sunspots. This is incredibly low and the European Space Agency follows with the same. So you don't even have to listen to me. You can go right over to the space agencies and look at their forecast for solar cycle 26. Now, I think it's gonna be tapering off because I'd had several conversations with John Casey and Pierce Corbin. And I know a few of the real astrophysicists who have the forecast originally it was interesting, like they're just talking about solar activity as astrophysicists, but when they came out and said it's going to get cold, they suddenly were chastised and lost their 30-year careers and thrown to the side and no public, you know, and then their reputations were run into the mud because they had some information that was different than what this popular global warming agenda would be. So you can see even at the highest levels of a 30-year career in NASA, when somebody even speaks out slightly differently in their presentations showing, yeah, you know, when you have this double peak on the sun and the first peak precedes the second peak at a higher level, generally it's a step off showing and rolls back in history showing all this data. They don't want that information public. And who was it? Valentina Zarkova came out, British mathematician, physicist as well, had very specific timelines coming into when these magnetic fields on the sun would cancel each other out and go to zero. And that's coming up next year. It starts, this is the first wave of the two. And then the, the culmination of that magnetic canceling should be at 2025. Well, since she had such precise timelines, she was forced to rescind all of her publications and she's disappeared off the map. Now, I don't know exactly know where she's gone. But she has a website that still puts this information out, but she's no longer publicly doing anything. I'm not sure exactly what had happened to that. But there's an enormous amount of high-level people with serious credentials that have been silenced and sidelined because they're trying to put this information out. So if NASA and European Space Agency on their sunspot counts for the next solar cycle, because this year is the apex of what we consider this solar cycle now. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen when it drops off? It's just going to continue dropping off. And so when is that? A year from now? Three years from now? Yeah, it'll be exactly about a year from now. We're coming into what they talk, the peak of this solar cycle is occurring from, say, this month, approximately to 12 months of next year. And that's it. And then it starts to drop off into solar minimum on the irregular 11.8 year cycle. But this time it's going to keep dropping off onto the 400 year. 
And a lot of people say much deeper into more of a 2000 year cooling, something like this, because we're at the very, 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 the very edge of stepping into a new glaciation cycle. And it's the longest interglacial that has been recorded in the last 2 million years. So they think that this one, when it starts dropping off into the cool, I mean, it's not going to step off into an ice age in like a year, but it's going to trend cooler from this point forward as we get into the next ice age over the next few generations. So we're kind of at the end of what we know is grow zones latitude wise where they would be able to grow. So if we're at the end of the era and these elitists understand where we sit in the cycles, then why would you try to salvage society? Because you couldn't, you can't. The current iteration of even where we live is going to not be viable moving forward. Mm -hmm. Right. So we are going into a cooling period and it's kind of hard to know exactly how long it will be or what cycle we're in exactly because it's kind of maybe like a, a Mayan calendar is a good analogy because they have wheels within wheels. So we are dealing with cycles within cycles. So some people are saying, oh, this is a, a cycle that comes around every 400 years or maybe it's a deeper cycle that comes around every 2000 years. And it's really kind of hard to know just how deep it will go, but we know that all the signs are pointing to this direction. You show a couple slides in that presentation of new plasma displays in the sky that enthusiasts who look at auroras have actually found a new type of display and they called it Steve. And also you talk about how there are deserts that have been dry for 2000 years, as far as we know, and they are now blooming flowers for the first time. As far as we know, you show slides of giraffes and elephants walking in the snow. That's a sight I never saw in zoo books as a kid. And you talk about droughts in places that previously had water, of course, fires in California. There's a lot of stuff happening climate-wise and extreme weather-wise, and it's hard to really pin a source on it. Obviously, they want us to think it's all CO2 and it's all man-made climate change, and that's why we need carbon taxes and we need everybody to limit their behavior. But the reality is that <laughs> it seems like there's whether weapons in play that they might be able to use to justify some of that evidence that makes their case and natural cycles in play. And it just seems like a lot of manipulation on top of natural cycles. That's, I guess, what I'm trying to say is it seems like we got two things going on. We got a natural sun cycle that can be mapped back quite a ways. And we can see that effect on food production and the jet stream and climates, and it all tends to shift pretty dramatically. But then we also have the parasitic elite trying really, really hard to make this look like it's our fault and also make it worse than it needs to be. Talk to us about that a little bit on the ways they're making this worse than it needs to be. Well, so this is the thing that is the ROEI. So how much energy are you going to put into this whole shift versus how much energy you're going to return out of it so the elite for sure are riding on top of this natural cycle they know it's here they know they can achieve more agendas and goals right now because there's going to be more confusion more starvation more death and so many other things happening as society rips apart at the threads here for a little bit that they can accomplish a lot more on globalism and the global goals they're trying to achieve because if you just look at it in a very basic sense, if you really 
as a let's say they were a very kind global governance structure and said, all right, everybody, it's all going to shift for about 20 or so years. And right around 2035 or so, it's going to get back to normal again. But during these next few years, what we have to do is shift everything we're growing as crops and grains about three to 500 miles south, retool all the factories, because maybe you were growing wheat, but we can grow amaranth now. But the factories aren't going to process amaranth the same way. So we have to retool every single factory. We have to get a new seed supply and a new latitude. We have to find the right place where the right amount of precipitation is with the right soil. And then we're going to set up new grow zones there. But, you know, in 25 years, we're going to need to move everything back again to the same place it was right now because that cycle will have ended. So just even on the logistics of trying to accomplish something like that, yeah, they're going to be like, no, not worth the trouble and the energy to put into that to bring it back out is not going to be worth it. So one thing that I can say, though, you alluded to the immigration there. North Africa is an exception. The Sahel is an exception to this. Because as we say right now, there would be nowhere to move grow zones to because the populace is on top of the areas we would need to move to. You can't just move cities out of the way to start farming and then rebuild the city and then put it back in place again. It just doesn't work like that. But the Sahel in North Africa, the shift is on there right now. The West African monsoon is shifting on its 4,000-year cycle, bringing much more precipitation in off the west coast of Africa or the east coast of the Atlantic. And also when you come over to the Indian Ocean, the Aden Gulf area is also having an enormous amount more tropical precipitation coming in there where lakes are forming in Oman. And these kind of things are happening in Yemen. Now, if you trace back and go far back in history to when the Shem and the Aksum controlled that kingdom area, that had one of the largest dams in all of the Middle East was in right there at Aden Port area. If you go inland a little bit, it was one of the largest dams and water reservoirs in all of the Middle East. This is when the frankincense route was running up and down Saudi Arabia, where they weren't going from one oasis to another. The entire area was green. And that was less than a thousand years ago. Hmm. So there's a lot of changes. And no, it was 800 AD when they had the dam at full capacity. And you can read about that, go into Oman and Yemen and learn about some of the history, the frankincense route, and also the massive dam that was there that was built by one of the queens of the time. And the Aksum with their metal, they had the most precise gold measurements. So after the Romans collapsed, the Aksum took over and then had the best weight in measures for gold. And on the front of their coins, their gold was the leaders of the time. And then also they had wheat chaffs around it. So again, you could trade the money for food. Now, here's the interesting thing. That whole area in North Sahel, or the, what we consider the Sahel in Northern Africa, and we got the dry part, which is still pretty dry. But if you go to the Northern Mediterranean areas, they're so wet right now, every one of those countries producing grains has had record grain production for the last three years. Hmm. And that's significant in itself. But what is also happening out of that area, the amount of immigration has gone away. Like they pulled everybody out of the Sahel and sent them pretty much up to Europe. So if you were an invading force and you were coming out to set a new grow zone, knowing where it's going to get wetter in the future, in the next five, 10 years, 20 years, where you could grow substantial crops twice on a rotation because of the rainfall, 
above ground and then they could tap the Nubian sandstone aquifer and pull all that water out like Libya did. And Gaddafi was doing the same thing, experimenting, pulling water out of the Nubian sandstone aquifer to irrigate the deserts to produce crops in Libya that was destroyed. All those water canals got destroyed during the American bombings there. They took away a standing army of approximately 10 million men. They've evacuated them out. They volunteered to leave. Now there's going to be no resistance if you want to take over those countries to set up a new grow zone. Because, you know, how many times has the West done that? They got in there to steal all the resources. Well, if you knew that was happening, these 10 million men would be none too happy that Westerners are down in there trying to steal their food in a new, the largest, most bountiful breadbasket on the planet and send it back for sale. But now there's no men there. They took them all away. They're all up around the planet elsewhere. So they removed the threat. Now it'd be a super easy place to invade. And then the rest where they are, they'll get cold and starve. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's all good context. And I've heard you talking about how China's making these massive investments in the areas of Africa that are going to be good grow areas. And it seemed a little silly when they started making these investments because they weren't quite there yet, but they're shifting. And now it's becoming more obvious that they're really getting ahead of this and they know what changes are going to occur and where the good spots are going to be. But in terms of the elite really making this worse, making this natural cycle and dramatically just throwing fuel on an already dangerous fire. I mean, we have all these things happening, like dozens of food production facilities catching fire or exploding, green policies in the name of climate change that shackle or limit production, lockdowns and COVID restrictions that were designed to snuff out the smaller independent businesses that just weren't allowed to make money for a period of time. We got diesel trucks that are now required to have this new additive in the fuel, which is in limited supply now. And California has a ban on older diesel trucks, which also limits the supply chain. We are now seeing this weird thing with PCR tests used to test animals and kill them in mass over a single positive test for things like the bird flu. They've done this with pigs for some other disease. There was a farmer in Texas where he was speaking out about his deer farm. He has like a thousand acres, but the feds are coming on his land and saying, oh, well, these deer have chronic wasting disease. We have to kill them all. And he's worked with deer his whole life. And he's like, I think they're just making this up and coming on my private land to kill my deer. It doesn't make any sense. In Australia, they've detected a parasite in bees. So they're killing their bees in mass. It's like really crazy. I just saw headlines too. the FBI made a statement about ransomware attacks, specifically targeting farmers. Well, I mean, who controls those ransomware attacks? You know, that seems like a weird false flaggy type of thing. And the Dutch farmers are being told that because of carbon, they've got to slash their livestock production. And even in California here, I saw a thing where we killed 3.2 million fish last year, more fish again this year. We're not restocking the usual rivers and lakes. So... It's just getting really nuts, man. I mean, we saw a little of this with COVID where people can't stand next to each other. Let's shut down the Tyson plant. And people were worried about food shortages. But I get that we have this natural cycle, but this long list of things I just threw out there, that doesn't need to be happening. You know, why are the elite killing all these animals in mass when they're going to be in short supply? It just, it's really concerning. Unless you're trying to starve the population before an invasion. Hmm. 
Because you know, routinely through history, you would put a siege to a castle. You'd surround it and not allow any supplies in or out before you would invade it. You know, it would really nothing new is new. It's all just a turn of the old returning again. So as you look at the Holmador, that's a famous chapter from Ukraine. Again, it's all back to Ukraine. If you look at the Bolshevik Revolution and what happened with the wheat growing regions and the wheat farmers during that time in the 1930s, the Holmador was where they starved to death all of the farmers and anybody who would not abide by the new regime put in by Stalin. They blamed the farmers because they were becoming wealthy with their wheat sales to the rest of Europe and Germany. And then they blamed all the starvation on the wheat farmers by not supplying wheat to the general populace of Russia. And then they simply went in with their army. They were all armed, but they disarmed everybody first. Wink, wink. And then when they went in, they stole all the farm machinery, all the farm implements, all the tools. They stole all the seed from these farmers. Then they burned down their houses going into winter. On the way out, they torched everything. And then they put a fence around it. And that was one of the world's longest fences. You think the Great Wall of China is big. Well, they just ringed that thing in there. You know how big Ukraine is. I mean, everybody talks about you know, it's a substantially large, huge, gigantic landmass. Well, they just ringed it in, and then they let everybody starve that was in there. And supposedly 10 to 12 million people starved to death. And this is in the major farming area of what you know is Ukraine, the bread basket of the world. Those people starved because it was done on purpose. Hmm. Now, I think we're heading into a global Holmador here. And you mentioned a few facilities that have been burnt down in America. I have a friend of mine, his wife keeps a database of all the facilities and she updates it weekly. And they are up to 137 food processing facilities that have burned down in the US as of this week, 137. The average is like 12 for an entire year or even some years where they only had two that would burn down. So when we look at this disruption, it's all encompassing. Now, how would they, take control of this. Well, let me walk you through a little scenario here. It might sound outlandish until we come into September and it'll make perfect sense. The DEF, that's a diesel exhaust fuel emission requirement that that lubricant and that additive you're referring to, it's called DEF, is in super short supply. So the manufacturers of these trucks, the way it works, you're engine won't actually work if you don't add that to it. Now, these are the brand newest vehicles here. So if you go back a little bit further, your trucks will still run without DEF in it. But the newer models, there's actually a different compartment that you fill up in a, you know, a truck stop that has DEF in it that mixes and blends with it. So when you fill, like on a roadside stop, if you're going down I-40 or I-75, whatever, big highways, you're going to fill up with DEF and diesel at the same time. So you make it illegal. You say no drivers with a, this, that, or the other. You need to close down. You got the backs requirements. All these drivers stop. And you're like, wait, supply chain just broke down. There's an enormous amount of idle drivers. Okay, there's still a supply fleet out there that could mobilize again, given the right conditions. Okay, park that in like set A over there. Now I'm going to bring you into what's about to happen in the Chicago Mercantile Exchange coming up in September 16th on their delivery date. They're simply as I've been told, the grain deliveries are not going to be coming as they have through the past. This is going to create massive shortages. 
There's a huge amount of people that want physical delivery because they know they can profit from it very quickly. Like within the day, they can sell it at a higher price. So they want to take the physical under their belt and get out of there with it. Problem is there's no barges and their rail traffic has been cut 20%. So there's going to be all kinds of defaults happening across the clearing firms that are getting fined $250,000 per day per contract. Now, a lot of these firms are sitting with 600 contracts on corn, 600 contracts on corn oil, 600 contracts on soybeans, 600 contracts on soy press cake, 600 contracts on soybean oil. But any of those, if they can't facilitate delivery, they're getting fined 250 grand a day. So we're focusing on corn mainly because this seems to be where the problem will be. So let's say a smaller firm got gobbled up and all the bigger firms took all their physical supply and they're at the bottom of the food chain sitting with 600 contracts at 250 grand per day on the fines. What about day two? That's $100 million a day. You know, and we're looking at absurd numbers coming in here. Like there's not enough money to fix the problem. But there's also not enough grain this year because of all the droughts and all these fertilizer shortages, herbicide and pesticide shortages. So grains are getting real lean anyway. Plus we got the grand solar minimum and natural climate variability denting into yields. So then what happens? Well, the markets stop. They're literally gonna stop for a portion of time then that means that major food producers need to go to the silos directly to purchase and get price discovery at the grain elevator or the silo or at the farm directly with the farmers. And then, as I've been told, it's not going to be one farm bargaining with one farm. Cargill is going to get in there and get everything. So if you're not at the Cargill level, they're going to swoop in and take it all. And you're going to be dealing directly with Cargill, and then Cargill will deal onward with these larger food producers. So, okay, that's subset B. Now, here's where it gets interesting, back to the trucks again. Subset C of information that winds it into a nice, succinct package is, once they get it to the grain elevators and these buyers are there, they're going to need to move it. But currently, with the rail breakdowns and the truck shortages, they can't. The diesel fuel won't be there at the volumes and the trucks just simply aren't there unless Cargill starts its own specific delivery chain using the same truck drivers that have been put out of business hmm. that won't require the vaccine passports that don't care if you put the DEF in your machines and you're going to have a monopoly of grain production in Cargill's centralized hands with Cargill's individual centralized delivery systems to the buyers at that point. So where does that put us? Consolidation at mega levels that are so unthinkable right now. But at the same time, if companies are not guaranteed their base product to manufacture, then their stock valuations, you can't value a company anymore. So the entire system is meant to collapse to zero so they can start the new system, whatever form that takes. So that's what we're looking for in September. Happy New Year. Uh, man. That's quite scary. Obviously, the economic stuff is a bit over my head. I've heard you talking about the commodities markets and this bottleneck that's going to happen in September. I've heard you talk about the farmers who don't fulfill their contracts. They get fined. The traders, as you mentioned, get fined too. How big is the commodities market compared to like the housing market? I mean, if we had to 
compare this to 2008 and one sector bringing down a big chunk of the economy, I mean, is the commodities market five times bigger? I mean, obviously we have to eat, we have to live in houses too, but the damage that's done to this segment of the economic pie, how bad could it spill out into the other areas in the general economy? Everywhere. Simple economics 101 is company gets a product, company manufactures a product, company sells a product to the public in a store. Me and you, we go buy it, they get revenue, and then that much revenue can be calculated to give the valuation of a company and their stock price. And if they issue bonds in the company, that can be valued also. But without that price discovery on even knowing if they can even get the grains, and there'll be no market for a stabilized price to know how much it's gonna cost. So they can never do anything forward. They can never protect themselves. So there's no more valuations for what we consider companies, especially at the basic foodstuff level. And when it goes there, then everything you know in stocks, bonds, ETFs, which is the exchange traded funds, and that spills over into the mutual funds, the retirement accounts, 401ks, and everything in between. The thing that would be safe is precious metals, obviously, and real estate. Like, not, I'm not talking a high rise in Miami Beach or somewhere, a farmland, productive land where you could grow your own food. So it gets into an all encompassing thing. And if you look out, you know, Greg, you were so into it about they're going to reset something. It's a new era we're entering. There's a change on purpose. Well, you have to evaporate the economy first before you can bring in a new digital ID system to access your funds and put universal basic income in play and start a social credit system globally. That has to be one fell swoop where everybody knows it's changed. And there's no dispute whether there's two similar economies running parallel. There's only one and everybody on the planet knows it and never disagrees with it. There's only one and that's the way we go because the old one doesn't work. Hmm. Yeah, quite scary. And obviously we can look at little pockets of countries where some of this stuff does roll out in advance as like a test case. I understand Iran just rolled out a digital ID that's required for food purchases. And clearly that's something they'd love to implement here if they can get it done. And it sounds like they've got a plan to get it done. But on the subject of international goings on, you left me a voicemail where you mentioned that you got a list of like 15 countries on the brink of collapse and revolt over food prices. We just had societal collapse in Sri Lanka, but apparently there's more than a dozen more that are very close. And it might be something that we start to see before this episode even gets out to people. But what are some of these places where the cracks are showing the most? Well, Egypt and Algeria. And then if we go, Albania is another big one that's happening. Not enough. If you're in Europe, you'll hear about the Albanian uprisings, but you won't see it. Now, the one for me I'm focused most on is in Argentina at the moment. Because Argentina is a major grain producer. And see, everybody in the West right now, in this northern hemisphere, is saying, wait, okay, our grain production is not very good here. There's a lot of problems this year right now in the Northern Hemisphere. So everybody's kind of pointing fingers going, oh, if we just wait for Brazil's corn to save us, or if we wait for Argentinian production to save us, and Australian production, it'll save us. So with the societal collapse and unrest on food pricing and hyperinflation happening in Argentina, you have to really wonder how much is coming out of there because 
you know, they forbid all export sales of corn. They said no more exports of corn. So then we start to go, uh oh, what happens if the southern hemisphere perhaps has a volcanic winter a year without a summer because of the Tonga eruption and their yields are even worse than ours? Not because of fertilizer shortages, not because of herbicide shortage, but because the volcanic ash is affecting the weather so much. Because you got to realize that was a mesospheric latitude and altitude eruption there. The tallest volcanic ash column ever recorded, apparently in human history, quote unquote, was that eruption right there. Went up some 188,000 feet or 190,000 feet into the atmosphere. Now that was the center column. It wasn't the entire ash plume going up by any means. But when you start to look at 20 degrees south latitude to 40 degrees south latitude, the amount of cooling and absurd stories coming out and I'll give everybody a little nugget here, a couple nuggets. You're gonna to wanna to check out these three websites. They are gonna lay bare and clean for all to see. Watchers.news, like a watcher, W-A-T-C-H-E-R-S dot news. They follow a lot of what is considered obscure weather stories. And then if you go to another website called strangesounds.org, they follow all the stuff, plasma displays in the skies, different anomalies with freezes and you know animals, mass animal die-offs, that sort of thing. And then if you go to Electroverse, Cap Allon, shout out, he puts together a very detailed amount of stories that don't make mainstream media about crop losses and weather anomalies and cold events also happening. And once you start to browse these three sites and focus on different countries, and then you start to get into like the Bureau of Meteorology in Australia and even them coming out saying it's an exceptionally, unbelievably cold, all unprecedented number of freeze days in a row already. And they're not even into the depths of winter. There's a lot of things adding up to say the volcanic ash is definitely cooling the southern hemisphere considerably. Ice events, snow events, temperature events happening that's really going to dent into crop production. But then we're starting to see some of these Southern Hemisphere countries getting into some unrest like Nigeria. Well, that would still be Northern Hemisphere, excuse me. But in the African areas where we're seeing so far, Sudan is going off, Nigeria, Ghana, Zimbabwe, they're moving to a gold back currency, but they can't keep it together. So you're starting to see a lot of these fraying edges around places where they grow a lot of crops. So if you're seeing civil unrest in South Africa and Argentina and coming down into Uruguay, also food riots because price is rising too much. These are some massive grain producers in the Southern Hemisphere. And if they're in civil unrest, they're sure not out there producing grains for everybody to eat and export up north here. Mm -hmm. I know wow. a long-winded answer, excuse me for such a long one. I got to put a time clock so I can leave my answers to two minutes or less. <laughs> it's all good. That's why we have a two-hour show. But speaking of that, I do try to make the first hour sound pretty complete. And we've been very uh, doom and gloom so far. And a lot of this does sound intense and scary. And in the second hour, we can get deeper into solutions and what things people might be able to do. But... In terms of at least a preview, the cliff notes, an overview uh, for this first hour, we do have opportunities to form strong networks, to form bonds with local ranchers and sustainable meat producers right at the source. We can grow stuff on our own. 
and we can maybe do a few other things that would help soften the landing. But there's also factors that a lot of people probably don't consider. Like I've heard you mention that earthquakes, drought and flood, you know, all that stuff that comes with the grand solar minimum. It's going to affect our electrical grid and plumbing systems because they are fixed to the crust of the earth. So if we have major movements, that's going to be a major problem. And also with the elite exacerbating everything, having a big chest freezer full of meat doesn't really do you a ton of good when there's no power. If they shut off the power for like two weeks at a time, which you've suggested they would do, that is to squeeze your stockpile. So help us get a little bit of an overview of the solution side of all this and how we can be strategic and maybe see things that we might typically have blinders on for and navigate this <laughs> uh, and make it through to the other side. Canning, because when you said that if the power goes out, you can run your generator for a little bit off and on. Now, the first thing, if you do have a generator, you don't need to run your generator 24-7 to keep your refrigerators cold. You need to run it an hour every four hours to keep that meat frozen or everything in that cool state. If the power continues to stay out after a couple of days, my burner is coming out with my propane and I'm on pressure canning, all that that's coming out. Because you could leave it out and do batches, if you will, where then you start to pressure can all your meats because that is be the only way to preserve it. So if the power for me starts to stay out longer than today, everything in my freezer goes into cans, pressure canning, and you should have a couple bottles of propane and you should at least have a plate burner that runs on propane so you can heat your pressure canner up enough where you can get that all canned out. Not a lot of people are thinking about that. There was a lid and canning jar shortage during the COVID time, but it seems like there's a lot more of that stock that has hit the shelves lately. But you're going to want to get the larger jars as well. You're not going to want to put things in like a one pint jar or a one quart jar. At the very minimum, you're going to want to go as like a half gallon because it takes a lot of time and energy to can things anyway. So bigger, the better. That's a solution. And as soon as you can all that up, then it's good for another year or so, maybe even longer, depending on where you store it. But you're gonna have to get seeds because your, your stocks are gonna run out eventually. I don't care if I can that full freezer full of meat or a freezer full of edge, eventually that runs out and you're gonna need to grow some of your own food. So think about the things that are gonna come in short supply. Like with the information that we're talking about today, Greg and I, it's gonna be total awareness at just everybody's going to understand this by September and October of this year. So you're going to have 40, 50 million people running out at the same time to buy garden tools, which won't be there because if there's only a million garden tools in America sitting on the shelf and 40, 50 million people want to buy them all at the same time, simple math. Same thing with the seed suppliers. You know, the main grow season is finished, but during COVID, the seed suppliers got really strained. Like Johnny Seeds or True Leaf Market, these kind of major seed suppliers on the heirloom and organic varieties. And Greg, I'm sure you know a few others as well. Mm -hmm. But getting your seed supply and your seed stocks in order before those run out, it's the same thing. 50 million people want to get seeds, these companies only have enough for just even what is considered gardeners and the increase in gardening. 
during COVID almost wiped out their seed stocks. So imagine a panic buy because, oh no, I don't know what's happening. All I know is I need to grow my own food. Mm, okay. Then they're gonna have to learn how to build their soils because the amount of fertilizers is gonna be thin. Cause I go, I have a registered farm, so I go to the farm co-ops and there's only so much in the back there, you know. If everybody in the county ran to the co-ops, they'd be sold out in about a minute. So how do you build your soils up? And how do you create your own composts? And these are things that are going to be, you know, we're going back in history to survive the future. Does that be a small, short list to start with? Hmm. Well, it's good for people to keep these things in mind for sure. And I guess I would ask you, are there certain generators or even better solutions that you recommend for keeping the power on or at least keeping our food edible when we do have some kind of stockpile and we need to keep it going yeah again you know the past offers us all the solutions we need which is scary because my grandmother i could have talked to her and had her teach me all this when i was a kid but i, I was too stupid to understand that I was like, oh, we got refrigerators, we got supermarkets. Grandma, you're so old school. Why would you store stuff in like a root cellar? There's a snake down there. You know, just things like this. And now I look and go, oh, I wasted all those decades where she could have, and my grandfather could have taught me stuff too. Like, oh, I could have been so, so sufficient had I listened to them or learned from them all the old skills. Mm -hmm. Like canning, like water bath canning. Who has, you know, 30 gallons of white vinegar laying around where you could go start canning things in a fermentation bath not a lot i'm sure you know one of your preps though would definitely be this weekend to go at least buy 10 gallons of white vinegar so you could in an emergency at least put all of your veggies in a water bath and keep them for six to eight months at the minimum you know fresh veggies just plop them right in there put the water and the vinegar in seal them up and you know you could again comes back to the burner and then put them under the water there for a few minutes and then you're good. The more old people you know, the better. <laughs> I agree with that. And I've heard you talk about root cellars and cold closets as an alternative to generators because even they run out and they need to be fueled and they can't last forever. Yeah, the earth can provide cool for you at an ambient temperature. Now, the problem we have in East Tennessee here is on the back of my property where I'd want to put one, there's a bunch of rock. And then B, it's really wet here. So you know, the root cellars that are done up in Ohio or Indiana are very, very different than the ones in Tennessee where the we have springs near us. So the water is always seeping here or the ground is like you, you dig a big, huge hole in the ground here. Water's going to seep out of it. So you now I'm running into a whole different set of issues trying to do that compared to where the water tables, you know, 100 foot underground versus right here at the surface. It's going to be a hit or miss. Maybe you have to borrow somebody else's root cellar. Like springs, you know, another thing, if your water turns off, you're going to have to get water somewhere and relying on rainwater, which is contaminated anyway for drinking. Yeah, you can filter a lot of that out and it might be a good for like a pinch in the first week while you figure out where your spring water sources are. But instead of running around frantically, like where's the ground coming from or licking the ground like a deer do to try to find where the salts have accumulated after some pool dried out, go look for the springs now. And there's a website called findaspring.com where anybody where there's a public spring, you can go on their map and you can find something located near you or, you know, find out where your 
springs are, because that's generally some of the cleanest water around is spring water. Mm -hmm. Good advice. Good advice. And how about those emergency food supply companies? I hear them doing ads on all kinds of prepper podcasts. Do you endorse any of them or think that they would be a good thing to have on hand? I mean, a lot of us probably don't have basements or places to really store stuff. Maybe if we have a shed or something or a garage, we could put these non-temperature sensitive emergency food supplies in those spaces. What do you think about that? Well, if it's food and it's stored, whether it's freeze dried or dehydrated or whatever, it's still sensitive to temperature. Mm. Things like salt and vinegar, they're not. So you can pretty much put them out in a hot shed that gets hot every day. Fuels, you need fuel stabilizers. But if you have anything of a food stuff that's in a Mylar pack bag, you're going to want to keep that somewhere, even just in your house under the bed, so it keeps it more of an ambient temperature cooler than it would be out in a scorching garage. Like the problem for me is I'm trying to go indoor vertical agriculture this year and do rotary grow domes and LED grow lights on trays and have all that out in my garage. But it's not insulated because it was built after this log cabin was built. So it's an attachment to the house, but it's not insulated. So I'm trying to think about what kind of R factor. I bought some sheeting that I can put up and I'm trying to make a frame and then frame that in and then have all the growth within that. But the same thing applies. If the electricity stops and all my LED grow lights stop and all my rotary grow domes stop too. Hmm. So you do have to keep your food at sort of a, the best stabilization of temperature you can. Now I will say freeze dried would be the very best way to go. But that's really expensive and way harder to find because things like in California, Greg, are you see you experiencing a drought over there right now? Like what, what's the food? What like you're driving down the road comparatively before you saw like tons and tons of crops wherever you were driving compared to now, like what are you seeing in the difference? Because I'm hearing that these freeze-dried food producers can't even seem to get their basic vegetables in to process the freeze-dried foods. Hmm. I'm not seeing a ton of that, but I haven't ventured uh, that far uh, down the highway recently. I mean, I'm sure it's probably true, but on the news, they tell every individual they need to limit how much they water their gardens. But yet sometimes I'm driving down the highway and these big monocrop corporate farms, they've got sprayers spraying all day, spraying down the highway. It just seems like the rules are for individuals, not for the corporate food producers. But I'm sure there's some truth to what you're saying. Well, that seems to be the word on the street, and that's the reason some prices are rising exponentially, and then there's non-availability in certain items is they just can't get the items. Now, first and foremost, that freeze-dried is going to be your best way to go. And then your second is going to be the dehydrated foods. You know, they're going to last, but it's not going to last as long as the freeze-dried foods, obviously. So whenever you're looking at it, you know, think about how many people are in your family and how many calories you might need to do tasks. And in addition to any of the freeze-dried or storable foods that you're going to keep, you're going to have to think about oils and things to keep your brain functioning. Because you could have all the freeze-dried vegetables you want and have just a huge stack to the high Himalaya size thing of, you know, just storable foods. But if you don't have the fats to keep your body going, you're going to be malnourished. You need to think about fats, lard, butter, olive oil, 
avocado oil, nut oils, if there would be like a walnut oil or something. Stay away from the sunflower and the corn oils because that's not going to help you at all. all right, but you need like these really dense coconut oil would be another one if you could stock up on a little bit of that. And the expiration dates are a bunch of BS anyway. You know, your storable foods can stay good way past what the expiration date says. So a lot of times when you're looking at cans, instead of just throwing it away, open it and see if it's still good. Because I read this U.S. Army report. This thing was just massive, massive, massive. The very first part of it was them going through 40,000 medicines that the U.S. Army uses and then quantifying the actual expiration date that was printed on the package. And then the, the next was like, how long was it really good past that date stamped on the package? And almost everything, unless it was a live something that was in a refrigerator and a live virus or a live bacteria mm -hmm. or a live whatever it would be in their culture, almost everything was three years or past. So just to even think of that, like three years for medicines past the expiration date. But then they did the whole thing of like a hundred and something thousand different types of food stuffs that they had all the way from like flaked parsley to whole peppers to ground pepper they did they really did a good job but it encompassed every single thing that possibly ever went in to a food product in the army ever and then they did the same thing they went okay if you hadn't opened it yet it would still stay good for two years after this so generally canned foods would stay good for three to five years after the expiration date hmm. so again you know it's just all about testing the food first before you throw it away and the hotter it gets and the colder it gets, especially if it freezes solid in the winter and then your, your linings crack, your stuff's going to go bad. And the same in the heat, if it gets too hot. So try to keep your stuff indoor, like under a bed or in a closet. So it doesn't get into a baking tool shed that gets hot and cold every day or cold and frozen every day in the winter. And then super hot, 90, hundred, 120 degrees in the daytime. And then back again, you know, a little caution on that. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you store your stuff, Greg? I mean, how do you take your, <laughs> your foodstuffs and keep them more at an ambient temperature. What are you doing at your own place there? Almost nothing. I am ashamed to say I'm in the process. The audience is probably sick of hearing it. But I'm trying to move out of San Diego and probably move back to where I grew up in Missouri, get a couple acres and try to get ahead of this thing. Because right now in San Diego, places are small. There are no basements. There is no garage. There's very little I feel like I can actually do here. So it kind of sucks. But I'm trying to make a move. I've put a few offers on places that have, uh, you know, I've gotten outbid twice now. So uh, we'll see. But I just think that there's a much better chance for me if I move than to try to make this work. So, yeah, ashamed to say <laughs> uh, I should be way further ahead of this thing, but I'm not. You know, that's just the honest reality. Yeah. And I heard somebody say, too, maybe, you know, if you know where you're going to move. If you had some friends there, you know, give them the money to buy for you and you, they store it at their place until you're ready. And, hey, I'll move in and I'll pick all the food up when I get there in case of an emergency. It's still there. And if I can get back and then, you know, I could still have some of the food. And if it's an emergency, you all can use it, too, until I get back and use somebody else's place as a storage place. But getting out bid on land, that's a huge thing right now. Everybody wants farmland. So the bidding process is heavy and fast. Mm hmm. Interest rates are rising too. I have a buddy who just got a house and uh, through the process, you know, they bumped his interest rate up, I think just a quarter of a percent. It could have been a half a percent, but it changed his monthly payment by $200. And a lot of people 
are not in a position where that is sustainable. It just it it they can't handle an extra 200 every single month for the same thing they thought they were getting. It's tough out there. So a lot of the people selling houses, they don't want to lower the prices because they don't feel like they need to, but yet the interest rates as they go up, affordability, it makes it much harder. So yeah, I'm in a, between a rock and a hard place, but I think I'll be okay. I just, uh, I'm just not quite there yet, but I feel like we covered almost everything we could throw at people. Is there anything we missed in the interest of covering all our bases? There is. And I'm going to take you back to your cryptids in the beginning. <laughs> no, And that's really exciting that you mentioned that because as has been recorded through history, time immemorial, when the sun changes, it's the electromagnetic field. Your perception changes also. And that would include your auditory, which what you can hear, and then your visual perception, what you can see. Your perception is going to shift into a higher energetic state. So perhaps you would start to see things that were not there before. Mm. And this brings us back into a lot of myth and tradition of things that were known and seen and interacted with that are not now. We're in a lower vibratory state. Hmm. If our vibration increased, which is happening with the sun, we're going into Aquarius, a lot of faster energies. After we get through this cycle, the sun's going to bounce right back up and it's going to behave differently and it'll be vibrating a little bit faster. So the electromagnetic field will be differently as well. Perhaps we would start to see things or hear things that were not there prior because we're more in tune with the new frequency. And the plasma displays in the skies, that's going to be more enhanced, more electrified atmosphere, which would explain the canyon walls riddled with all those what look like etchings and drawings of humans and centipedes and this sort of thing. That's what they witness in the sky as plasma displays, electrified skies. So we're going to get both. Well, you can't have one without the other. So mythical beings and legends are the plasma or there are real creatures that we interact with, but we're able to see them and hear them when we couldn't before because we're in a different density, literally a different frequency of vibration around our solar system. And maybe things will come in to visual perspective and maybe they'll drop out. And that's why the elite, I think, are trying to hold us in this visual perspective and perception is because they're so dark and dense as we vibrate higher moving through this scale that they will disappear out of our perception and we will hopefully not see them for another 25,000 years. Hmm. Wow. Well, David, I have to applaud that masterful full circle return to cryptids. I mean, we were so far from cryptids. I can't believe you pulled us back there, but <laughs> need to go there. Yes. Well, that was, I guess, one little fun sliver of a really sad and uh, depressing interview. But I appreciate your dedication to this space and helping people prepare for what the elite really don't want us to know about. They'll use every wedge issue they can to keep us separated and from focusing on these big picture problems. And we are lucky to have you. Before I cut you loose, remind the people of your ADAPT 2030 channel, your podcast, and any links you want to leave them with. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, the ADAPT 2030 channel across many of the video platforms, up on Rumble and BitChute and a Mike Adams site over there on Brighteon TV and the Tube as well. And then the Mini Ice Age Conversations podcast, where I talk 30 minutes at a time, and that's anywhere podcasts are hosted across the net. And uh, I haven't really been working on the website because I'm devoting more time out to growing food, putting up fences, and working on the farm more. So I'm really trying to divide my time into what I think is worth 
spending time on moving forward because a lot of things are not going to be worth the money put into them or the time put into them when I could do other things like go out to my 40 tomato plants and pick that and trim those off versus putting another post on a website, which if the internet goes down, won't be worth much. Mm. Wow. Well, you paint one hell of a picture, man. And uh, I got a lot of planning and thinking to do, but I do appreciate you spending some time with me. Hopefully people out there are taking this to heart as well. Keep fighting the good fight and hopefully we can break on through to the other side. Take care, man. Serenity now. I think this is a good interview that hovers over the target when it comes to things I'm most concerned about in the headlines I'm reading, but it definitely doesn't make one confident in the future. If you haven't been motivated to contribute to the decentralization of the food supply chain or contribute to the edible output in your neighborhood yet, maybe you never will be. I don't know what the alternative is. I guess we can all just keep storming the same five grocery stores until they're empty and then have a meltdown on the blacktop like it's kindergarten all over again. We spend so much time talking about how they've pushed us into these conditions, but there are a lot of good answers right in front of us. I'm disappointed that I didn't make more progress sooner, but for the last nine months, I've been trying to get my bearings with an infant, and for the nine months before that, my wife was pregnant, and for nine months before that, half the time I wasn't supposed to leave my house. Now we have put two offers on properties back in Missouri that we didn't even get a chance to see in person and got outbid on both of them. It's all good. We will try again, but sometimes you think you're going to get ahead of something and then all of a sudden you look around and feel very behind. Kind of embarrassing when David asked me what I've been doing and there's not much to say. But hey, we're all on this ride together, me and you listeners out there, so don't judge me unless you've made the right moves on your own. I'm being a bit hard on myself here, but I know I'm not the only one who feels behind, and there's just no way to feel better than to act, really. A lot like exercise. If you're feeling out of shape and suboptimal, we all know that you can either let the negative talk take over, or you gotta just get out there and do the hard work. And on the positive side, survivability is in our DNA. We all come from a long line of survivors, right? That's pretty amazing when you really think about all of history and all of the difficult times. And you can know that there's a direct line of ancestors that you came from and they made it. No matter what the world threw at them, they survived, raised children, and those children survived and did the same. And here you are. So get at it. It's very much in you. But lots of good info in this one. I thank David for all he does. In the second hour, we got even deeper, if you can believe it. We talked about getting educated on medicinal plants and herbs. It's not just about food. We talked about why David thinks there will be troops stationed in grocery stores by Thanksgiving. That's a bold claim, but he has reasons to think that. We talked about the lessons he's learned from studying the Great Depression, the attacks on travel both in the air and on the land, the logic behind the lab-grown meat and insect protein pushes that we're getting. They even got Robert Downey Jr. doing bits with Colbert trying to make this stupid shit cool for the masses. And we talked about why converting everyone to electric cars would destroy the grid, as well as several other things, but you know the deal. 
You want to hear it or you don't. And as always, sign up for Plus if you like what I do and get twice as much content with no stupid sponsors or wasted time. Big thanks to the Plus members who do keep me going. It's all I got, and I'm super thankful for you guys. As for the meetup calendar, let's jump over to August. On the 6th, we have a San Francisco meetup at the Executive Order Bar and Lounge. I like that. And on August 11th, we have Beers and Weird in Portland, Maine at the Cryptozoology Museum, coupled with a brewery meetup at the Bissell Brothers Brewery. Now, I like that. Creativity is what it's all about. We could go to baseball games together. We could definitely go to cryptozoology museums together. We could go on hikes. We could go to the farmer's market. There's a lot of things that THC listeners could do. And all it takes is for someone to put a bright idea on that calendar and for me to read it off on the air. And some people will show up. And those two are really all we got. It's a little disappointing, but hey, if you have interest in building a network locally, just make an event. It's free and it's easy. And I think we can do better. These should be happening everywhere and not just in the U.S. International events are totally welcome too. But that's the show. Keep following David on his Mini Ice Age Conversations podcast or the Adapt 2030 channel that you can find across the full range of video platforms. Keep this stuff top of mind because we do need to be prepared. It seems like the first dominoes have been knocked over and we're all just wondering, well, when are the dominoes going to get to us? You can do more than just wait and wonder. When it comes to both potential earth changes and the intentional trouble that's being caused from the top down. But either way, take care of you and yours. Thanks for listening. Once again, I'm getting out of here. I've done my part. Your move, supply chain sabotagers, livestock mass murderers, and foot soldiers of the Great Reset. Your fucking move. Well, they tie that yellow ribbon round the oak tree. They've worn out all the prayer in their hearts. All along thought they were rooting for the home team. As they're sent to the game and torn apart.
And that is another show complete. Remember, as much as you enjoyed this, which is just the free first hour, I hope you'll become a Plus member to hear the full two-hour interviews. You also can engage with other Plus members in the comments and the forums. And you'll find your answer to one of the most common questions I get, which is where can I find those cover songs that you use at the end of the show? Well, they are free downloads for Plus members too. And without Plus members, I can't hire the occasional musician to bring these odd cover song ideas to fruition. Plus members are how I'm able to do what I do without ads and without the big machine being on my back. We can fit so much more into a two-hour interview, and I do my best to make it worth your time and money. The conversation only gets deeper, weirder, and more controversial in that private hour. How could it not the way things are going? But the best way to sign up is at thehiresidechats.com, where new first-time subscribers always get a free seven-day trial because I'm just that confident. There's no PayPal on the website, but if you need to use PayPal, then sign up through Patreon and you get all the same episodes. Our website is a credit or debit system, but you can also scope out the other options like a few various cryptos, cash or check mailed to the P.O. Box. And I'll even barter with most people if you have your own business and produce something nice that my wife or kid or taste buds might like. But the architects of consensus reality have made it clear that these themes and topics aren't really welcome on the main stage. And so this is how we secure a little counterculture corner for ourselves, and I hope you'll join Plus because that is the only way it works. Besides, you can cancel anytime right on your profile page. The most common concern I hear is people just being unsure if THC Plus will work with their podcast app, and the answer is probably yes. But if not, we have several high-level app recommendations for whatever phone you use, and the website is made for mobile too. We're trained to tip a waitress for bringing us a sandwich, but that tip doesn't give you access to a second sandwich. Really, I'm not asking for any more than that, and I think I offer a better service. Come get your second serving of tasty conspiracy goodness in exchange for that small token of your appreciation. Beyond that, let it also be known that we have grown and survived as long as we have by word of mouth. I don't care so much about social media likes or follows, but tell the right people about THC. And not just listeners, but the high-level figures who are better suited to sit down with me than most other hosts. And if you can help me with any of these things, I can work to bring you better shows, which is just a win-win for both of us. Informative, entertaining, and action-packed. 
It also never hurts to thank a guest you liked if you have the time either. We want them to know people are listening, so they're willing to come back down the road too. Thank you for spending some time with me and cheers to a better tomorrow.